All right, this morning, it is Palm Sunday, so we are in Psalm 2. That makes perfect sense. (laughs) I promise it will make sense as we go through it. We got a theme going on, okay? So you just got to stick with me. That and I'm weird. I've been looking for an excuse to, to go through this psalm on a Sunday morning anyway. Lou is convinced this is my favorite psalm. It may not be my favorite, and if it's not, it's at least the one I reference more than any other. And that might say more about me than it actually does about the book of Psalms, that Psalm 2 is the one I talk about more than anything. Although it could also just say more about the world that I live in. And I'm going to go with that, because anytime it's not my fault and it's something else's fault, I view that as a win. So we're just going to blame the world for that, right? So Jan's fault and the world's fault today, right? Okay, got to keep my checklist going as we go. <laughs> so the answer as you read your Bible to the question is, when you get to the end, what's the answer? When in doubt, there you go, Jesus. Now, sometimes as you're reading your Bible, that answer is more obvious than others. That is going to be Psalm 2. This is one of those, part of the reason it's one of my favorites is because it's one of these places in the Old Testament that you read it and go, you people weren't paying attention? <laughs> Did you guys all just take a nap for a couple centuries and, and just miss it? But, you know, that's, that's half the fun. Background stuff, because believe it or not, even though we're doing the entirety of the psalm and we didn't miss anything before or after, there is some structure to the Psalter. So Psalm 1 basically introduces life and how you should live it. And we're going to end up reading all of Psalm 1 today because it helps us understand Psalm 2. Psalm 2 introduces the world and what God is going to do about it. And if you understand Psalm 1, then you will understand why Psalm 2 is necessary. And we will make that point as we go through that. Now, reminders for Palm Sunday. It is an entrance of the king into Jerusalem. Reminder for where you live. There's going to be another one. There's going to be another entrance, and that is where Psalm 2 helps you to understand your world and to live rightly, because you don't live in Palm Sunday. You live on the other side of Palm Sunday, but before the second coming of the king. So to understand who he is and why these things matter will help you to understand your world, hence Psalm 2. Sound like fun? Okay, let's dive in. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? Ooh, ooh, pick me, pick me. I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. (laughs) Psalm 1 actually gives you a pretty good answer. Well, it'll get there in a second, but. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree, firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. Well, that's the righteous man. How are we doing with that world? Does that describe the place that you inhabit every single day? No, unfortunately. I've, I've joked for years, I tell you, you live in a world that is seeking to follow after the Bible. The problem is the passages of the Bible the world is seeking to follow after are Judges 21, 25, and Romans 1. And if you know Romans 1, that makes sense. If you don't know Judges 21, 25, it's the repeated refrain from the book of Judges. And there was no king in Israel in those days, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Tell me that's not the perfect summation for the world that you inhabit. Eh, What should we do? If it feels good, do it. Don't tell me how to live. I'm just going to be me. (laughs) I mean, these are the mantras that we have in our society. This is the brokenness. Now, why have we forsaken Psalm 1, 1 through 3 
and lived like this? Well, that's simply because of who we are. Genesis 6-5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. This is actually one of those things that psychologists argue about. Because if you study human behavior and human thinking for any length of time, let me think about this. Let's back up for a second. Biblical understanding of humanity. People are good, people are evil. What's the biblical understanding? People, people are evil, right? There is no inherent goodness in an unredeemed humanity. Secular understanding. People are good, people are evil. People are basically good. There's a few bad apples. We have a few oopsies and mistakes along the way. But, you know, other than that, we're doing, as, as Tim Buck 3 once said, we're doing all right. We're getting good grades. You know, the future's so bright, I got to wear shades. <laughs> it's, it's an actual song. The band was Tim Buck 3, just so you know. Now, because <laughs> Tim Buck 2 was already taken, apparently. Now, I tell you that because if you actually study human nature and human behavior, even from a secular point of view, do you know what realization you are confronted with? That we're not good. That we're selfish. And what psychology ends up having to do is try to understand humanity, understand our selfishness, understand our pride, and do it from a manner that still leaves intact the lie that there is not God and that we are still basically good. And it's fun to read because they tie themselves in intellectual knots. And anytime I get to watch someone tie themselves in an intellectual knot, I rejoice because it's humorous to me. I, I'm not a good person. I keep telling you this. <laughs> So this is why they live like this, and this is what ends up happening in the world you inhabit. The innate sinfulness of man is evident in how we reason and what we reason to accomplish. I mentioned last week that I was, I was reading this book where the guy was trying to explain decision-making and morality, and he was explaining it that, you know, the way to make have people have better morals is you have to have a, a better base for them. And I was like, you're, you're this close to getting it, and he's just not going to get it. The reason I'm bringing this up is because that was one of his conclusions is that people are not good and you have to try to bridge the gap of their selfishness and their pride and their stubbornness in order to get them to make moral decisions. It was just, it was brilliant. I'm like, you're so close, dude. You're basically saying the heart is deceitful and wicked above all else and you can't understand it. And if you want these people to be good and work with one another and not be divided in society, you need people with better cores and better hearts. You're, you're right there and you can't see it. Why? Because he too was blinded by the suppositions because the nations are in uproar and the peoples are devising a vain thing. Let's continue. The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord. We're going to pause right there. Dividing up the battle lines. Just, we're all going to be on this side and we're going to let God be on that side. Does this sound like a good plan? What could possibly go wrong other than everything? Go back to Psalm 1 and understand. So you saw the righteous man, right? Dwelling in God's word. The wicked are not so. They are like chaff, which the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. It's a really nice way of saying what Proverbs has said, and I've reminded you of the last couple of weeks. There is a way which seems right unto a man, and in the end, that way leads to death. The kings of the earth take their stand. We've gone off to battle. We have devised our vanities. We have laid our, our siege weapons uh, set up, and we are going to war, and we will fight against God. This is dumb. And his anointed. Against the Lord and against his anointed. That's bigger picture here. 
Because this is where, again, I told you the answer becomes Jesus, and you can see it fairly clearly in Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is one of those rare ones. So if you ever notice, let me see if I can find one real quick as I flip through. Oh, yeah, here we go. <laughs> Good example is if you're in your Bible, if you're not in your Bible, just take my word for it. And you flip over to Psalm 3. You will see Psalm 3, there'll be a little title for it. And it'll say, a Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. Traditional Jewish understanding would tell you that's part of the psalm. You don't copy the psalm, you don't read the psalm without reading that because you have a, a structure, you have a context that is vital to your understanding of the psalm. You don't get that with Psalm 2, but every so often God helps us out and the New Testament goes, here, here, let me put this one in there for you so that you will make sense. And the New Testament helps us with Psalm 2, Acts chapter 4, one of Peter's like 35 sermons in the book of Acts. When they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your father David your servant said, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. Now, I'm going to take a little bit of a second because I have mentioned this a few times, I think, on Bible study, and I've mentioned this on Sunday morning. It is worth mentioning it again. So Psalm, Acts 4 is quoting from Psalm 2. Did you see the problem? Anybody paying attention or have I lost you already? So let's read Psalm 2 as it's in your Old Testament. The rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Now let's read Acts 4 again. The kings of the earth take, uh, took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. <laughs> yeah. Always remember, this is where it gets fun. Christ is not Jesus' last name. <laughs> Just in case you were wondering. And if, and if you grew up in a, in, a, in a profane household like I did, his middle initial is not an H, okay? <laughs> and if you don't get that joke, you're better off. So, I'm just making sure we cover these things. These are not part of the names. Christ is a way of saying, Messiah anointed one, one who is promised, one who is to come. Same way that is translated here. When your New Testament writers quote from the Old Testament, they never, I'm, I'm going to say never, there's probably like two examples that someone can find for me, but they basically never quote from the Hebrew of the Old Testament. So your English Bibles, Old Testament is translated from Hebrew and some Aramaic in the book of Daniel, and I think one other place, and I can't remember where that is. And your New Testament is translated from Greek. The New Testament writers were not reading and quoting from the Hebrew Old Testament, what we call the Masoretic Text. They were quoting from the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, which we call the Septuagint. Now, that's important because Christos, Christon, however it's conjugated, in Greek would actually be a very, very fair translation of the word Messiah, anointed one. It's a perfectly fair translation, and it's also beneficial because the New Testament is putting that title where? Upon Jesus, so that you do not miss it. So as they quote, they are fairly quoting from the Old Testament. It looks a little different when you read it in English, but that's simply because the NASB translators are doing us no favors here by transliterating the Greek word Christ. Always remember in languages there are translations and there are transliterations. So like my, my simple example of this always is you know what the Greek word apostolos means. What is it? It's the Greek word apostle. You know that. 
because we don't translate it into English, we transliterate it. We just take it from Greek and put it into English in a way that makes sense. Just like I can tell you historically, there was an explorer in the 1400s named Cristobal Colon. Who was that? Christopher Columbus. See, that's a cognate coming in from, let me see, that would have been Italian, no, who knows, what is he, an Italian merchant who probably spoke some Portuguese sailing for the Spanish? I mean, these, these people are confusing to no end. Yeah, exactly. So language does this all the time. Sometimes we do ourselves great favors when we translate. Sometimes we don't. My, um, my other example that I always like to give you is Genesis 49, the promise of the one who is going to come from the tribe of Judah. I think we're actually going to read this later. Until Shiloh comes... Well, that's a transliteration. That's just taking the Hebrew word Shiloh and bringing it directly into English. The word actually means to him whom it is promised. (laughs) We don't translate it, and we end up transliterating it, and you lose some of the meaning of the word. Your NASB does that in Acts 4 by translating Christos as Christ. But it means anointed. It means Messiah. It means the one who is chosen, the one who is promised, the one who is to come. The same thing that is going on in Psalm 2. Long way of telling you don't panic when you read your Bible and you don't see the exact same word. Stop. I've told you before, Christianity is a thinking religion and understanding your Bible requires at least two and a half brain cells. Okay? So if you've got fewer than that, you're in trouble, but you're all sitting upright, you're all breathing, so you're above that number, you're good, you can handle this. (laughs) I have faith in you if nobody else does. So we have Jesus in view. Acts tells you, we have David as writer, Acts tells you, that's going to be important moving forward. So what are they saying? Saying what? Verse 3, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. Well, okay, at least come up with something original, right? Isn't this humanity from the very beginning? Isn't this the argument? I don't want to become a Christian. You Christians don't have any fun. I saw a great argument this weekend. There was a, um, somebody lodged a complaint and called somebody puritanical. And you know, that's an insult in modern English, right? If I call you puritanical, what am I saying? Yeah, you're goody two-shoes. You don't have any fun. You're all morality and no... Okay, remember this about the Puritans, because you have this mind in your Puritans, right? They got the buckle hat like the dude on the Quaker Oats box. <laughs> Vern's like, you're speaking my love language. These are my people. <laughs> And you, and you picture them how? They are austere, and they're very simple, and they, you, you know, there's no emotion. This is how you imagine a Puritan, right? Yes, you just, you know, sleep with 14 layers on, you know. You do realize that, like, all of the Puritans had, like, 14 kids each, right? Now, some of you are giggling because you just put two and two together. You can only be so prim and proper and prudish and have a dozen children. And if you don't understand how that works, ask your parents. All right? I'm just going to leave that right there. This is the lie from hell that we get on a regular basis. This is the argument that, no, 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 God's enslaving us. He's giving us these rules. Okay, let's be honest with you. Who hasn't given you rules in this world? What would a world that didn't have any rules actually look like? Just, yeah, yeah, great example. It would look like Sodom and Gomorrah. What happens there? How does that get cleaned up? Clean up, aisle four. Fire, brimstone, yeah. (laughs) And they died, and they died, and they died. Which is why I always point out, this is the twisting of Scripture that you get in the modern world. How many many lies really are there? Go all the way back to Genesis 3, right? The serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made, and he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? And the answer is, 
No, we, we can eat from any tree, just not this one. Oh, but that one. See, once you start answering the first lie and don't deal with the foundations it's built upon, you start doing what? You answer the second one and then the third one, and next thing you know, you're eating the fruit you're not supposed to eat, and everybody's naked and ashamed, and sin has entered the world, and we're all doomed. See, <laughs> see, don't eat the fruit, children. That's, that's the lesson we just took from this, right? <laughs> or better yet, when strange women bring you fruit, don't eat it. Now, I shouldn't have to tell you that one, right? You know that. Like strange people stop inside the road, hey, want an apple? No, no, I'm thinking I'm good. Now, the reason why I land where I'm landing here on this authority and understanding is things like Romans 1. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. See, to say that we wish to cast our fetters off, to say that we wish to be free of any oversight, of anyone lording over anything at all, is to say we wish to be free of God. Because he's the one who's established the authority. He's the one who's put them in the place. He's the one who has drawn the borders of the nations, told the sea that you go this far and no farther. He is the one who has ordered and ordained all of these things. A rebellion like this is not just saying, we want to be free to do what we want. No, this is a freedom that says we wish to be free from the oversight and judgment of God. Now stop for a second right there, Christian. Where is freedom from the judgment of God found? What are God's terms in battle? Surrender. This is one of those things like, like beat this one into your head. God's terms are surrender. You don't get to go wrestling and say, you know what? All right, now that we've kind of stalemated, here's what I would like to offer you. <laughs> what do you think you are? No, the terms are surrender. But in that surrender is freedom, righteousness justice, mercy before the throne. It is all the things you seek to get through sinful living, through sinful thinking, are provided for you by actually taking upon the burden and yoke that is Christ. Always remember that part. Jesus doesn't free you and say, be free, go, go run, dance in the lily pads. Take upon me for and learn because my burden is easy and my yoke is light. But it's still there. No, there is still a way that you now walk in light of who God is and what he has called you to. There is still a way in which a world run and ordained by God is supposed to function. And for you to step outside of that is not to walk in the freedom of newness of life. It is to walk in the slavery of sin that is at war against God. This is the reality of the world that you live in. This is the reality of the world that they lived in. It's a really long way of saying what we've been saying in Ecclesiastes, which is, there is nothing new under the sun. So, Lines have been drawn. We're casting off the fetters as best as that's going to good, which, by the way, great word that we don't use enough, fetters. <laughs> you need to work that into your language. You can smite people with fetters. Remember, we've got to get smiting in there more often. So, who wants to see how God responds? This is one of the reasons this is one of my favorite psalms. Verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. You know, of all the things I think they were going for, I don't think laughter from heaven is one of them. Like, I don't think God doing the deep belly laugh was, was on the list of things that they thought was going to be the reaction. Not that unusual, though. Psalm 37, which also helps you with some context. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes at him with his teeth. The Lord laughs at him, for he sees his day is coming. Now, did you notice the why in Psalm 37? Why can God laugh at the wicked? Because God can see the day that is coming. There is a context to how God functions and how he operates in the world that he has created. And we don't have that context quite yet in Psalm 2. We're, we're going to get there. Before we get to that context, though, Christian, 
this should be enough. This should be a place that you can rest. The psalmist, David, is looking out at the world. He sees wickedness. He sees plotting against God. He sees sin and iniquity and people drawing up the battle lines. They are shaking their fist at God. And if you're David and you are seeking to live righteously in Israel, keep in mind. Ooh, okay. <laughs> Do my land speed record. You ready? Dun, 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 dun. Realize that if you're David, this wickedness is in the world and you rule over Israel. <laughs> now, how, how confident are you feeling right there? Do you feel good? Like, do we have the resources? Do we have the people? We, we can handle this, right? No. No, we cannot. Who can? God can. And that's part of the trust here. And that's part of, it's part of why I say you should be able to rest here. As David sees all of that, looks to heaven, and God's like, <laughs> look, at this, look at these guys. Oh, my God. Can you believe this? Okay, this is bad. Christian, that should be enough. Because you want to rest in your world where, where God is. You want to be able to look at the world and say, God is not worried about tomorrow, neither should I be. God is not worried about sin having victory over righteousness, neither should I be. God is not worried about sin and evil and Satan overcoming the kingdom of his people, and neither should I be. Psalm 118. From my distress I called upon the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me in a large place. The Lord is for me. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is for me among those who help me. Therefore, I will look with satisfaction on those who hate me. Same idea carried forward in the New Testament in Romans 8. What shall we say to these things? The salvation that God has promised. If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword? The answer at the end of that chapter is what? Nothing will separate. This is where we have to rest, Christian. You live in the midst of a now, not yet. You have seen the promises, what I talked about during communion. You have seen that triumphal entry in Scripture. You are waiting for that conquering return at the end of all things. But in the meantime, does it look like Jesus is ruling and reigning in a lot of places? No, it doesn't. And that's frustrating, and that's frightening, and that's terrifying. Christian, be at rest. Know that what he has promised is good. Know that what he has promised will come to pass. Know that there is no power or force in this world that will overcome his hand, and there is nothing greater. I always say, we, we get this messed up because we all get our Star Wars theology. We, we start buying into the dualistic lie that there's good, and there's evil, and there's this cosmic battle, and sometimes good is winning, and sometimes evil is winning, and we don't know how it's going to turn out. <sighs> always remember how that looks in Revelation 19, when the armies assemble on one end, and Jesus comes in, he's got the sash, and the sword, and the flaming eyes, and all that, and, like, and then the next verse is, and they died. <laughs> <laughs> they all assembled and he takes the sword from his mouth and poof, and you're all, bye-bye, thanks. And now we're throwing, we're, and from there on in, we're just chucking people into the lake of fire and we're done here and, and it's the end of time. That's the battle. That's the war. It is accomplished. As John 19 puts it, it is finished and that is where we are supposed to rest. So what is God going to do when he's done laughing? 
(laughs) Probably not something they're going to enjoy. Verse 5. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. That's probably not the thing you want to be facing. This is something we reminded you of when we went through Joel 2. The Lord utters his voice before his army. Surely his camp is very great, for strong is he who carries out his word. The day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome, and who can endure it? God has that kind of authority and he has that kind of power. So what does he say? Verse 6. As for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. This is why we're doing this for Palm Sunday. This is the reminder of what was done that day and what we are waiting for. So you can rewind, Zechariah 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation. Humble, mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the fall, the foal of a donkey. Now, this is part of the lesson that I always try to remind you of. When we talk about the work of Jesus and we talk about the work of the prophets and we talk about salvation, remember there are two sides of the coin, always. This isn't a Batman cartoon. There aren't, it's not two-faced with the same thing on each side. You, know? you have two sides of the coin. What are they? You flip the coin, you've got salvation on this end. What's on the other side? Judgment. Judgment and destruction. They go hand in hand. You will not read through your prophets for very long and see them promising judgment upon the enemies of God without at some point in the middle of the chapter going, and the Lord will be a refuge to those who seek him, or the Lord will save his children. You, and just like you will not see these long passages about salvation in the prophets without seeing in the midst of that God judging his enemies and doing away with sin and redeeming them from the pit. There is a reminder that in salvation there is judgment, and in the midst of judgment there is salvation. When we went on Wednesday through um, the book of Revelation. Several, several months ago, we made this point as going through all of these letters to the seven churches, is that you're seeing that there's earthquakes and there's famine, and when the judgment is coming, what's going on? You know, stars are falling out of the sky, and the rivers are drying up, and everybody's dying, and everything looks like it's gone to hell in a handbasket. What's, what's happening in the midst of that? That God is still redeeming and rescuing his people. There are still those gathered around the throne. There are still those who are on the mountaintop crying out. There are still those who are being rescued. That God is capable, I always give you the bad example, God is capable of patting his head and rubbing his tummy at the same time. See, so am I. Go team. Yay. <laughs> He can chew gum and walk down the street. He is capable of judging sin and redeeming you in the midst of it. Always remember that. So again, hang on. My voice is deciding it really does not want to cooperate. I think I was talking too much yesterday. That's my wife's fault. (laughs) So it's Jan, the world, my wife. There we go. Got the running list of who's on the list today. When Jesus claims that entry on Palm Sunday, he's not just claiming the work of the crucifixion. He's not just claiming the work of that day in Jerusalem. He's claiming all of it. Go back to that promise in Genesis 49 that I mentioned earlier. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh. We told you that means the one to whom it is promised. Until the one to whom it is promised comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. You're not just seeing the obedience of some of the people. You're seeing the obedience of all of the people. So, what might that look like? That's the next section of this psalm. So, verse 7. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. This is part of the reason why David is in view here, is because there aren't a lot of people in history that can make this claim. 
David is on the list. 2 Samuel 7. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, this is God's promise to David, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, if you're reading that historically, who is that about? Be honest, who would you think that was about if you were living in 10th century BC Israel? That's Solomon. Solomon's come along, he's wise, he's at peace, he's going to build the temple, which is the house for his name, will establish the line when Solomon sinned, which, you know, he was going to. God will correct him and God will ensure that Israel stays secure in the land because of who he is and what he has done. That's if you read it historically. But now look, is that temple, how's that, how's that forever temple doing, by the way? Is that, is that, is that, is that, is that thing still hanging around? Are we still offering sacrifices? No, no, unfortunately not, because that was not an eternal home. Christian, where does the Holy Spirit dwell today? In the hearts of believers, you are a tabernacle of God. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. He has built a house for his name, and the house for his name is his people. You're going, okay, but what about the other part of that, that when he sins, I'll correct him with the rod of men. Jesus didn't sin. No, no, he didn't, but you did. And whose penalty does Christ bear? Yours, mine, ours, Jan's, my wife's, you know. <laughs> Everybody on the list. <laughs> I'm not letting that go, just so you know. We're, we're, we're keeping that. I need, a ta- I need a tally board. Like I used to have in Sunday school. See, a lot of you guys don't remember Jonathan, but every once in a while Jonathan would say something and be like, and that's why you're single. And I'd make a little mark on the board. <laughs> and at one point we had like six or seven marks. <laughs> He's like, I'm starting to get the point here. <laughs> He took it in good stride. For those of you that know Jonathan, you understand exactly what I'm talking about. Yes, he is. He is, he is. For, for all the reasons on the book. <laughs> I wish him well. I do. I, I will. He was in the classroom when I did it. Remember, it's not gossip if you do it in front of him. <laughs> Sorry. No, this is the reminder, though, that Christ doesn't bear his iniquity. He bears yours. That's why his kingdom is established forever, because death is conquered, because sin has been defeated. That's where the resurrection that we'll talk about next week is so vitally important. That king who has entered in is a king who will make his kingdom, a king who will secure his kingdom. Remember the lesson from Israel from our trivia question. Why will Israel, why will that little tiny nation in the midst of that great big world, why will they be secure? God. Who will protect them? God. Who will justify them? God. Christian, nothing's changed. This is the reminder that that king who has come in is not a king to go to war with the Romans. The Romans are meaningless. When's the last time you were afraid of the Romans? I mean, come on. Nobody's been afraid of the Italian military in 2,000 years. And I say that as someone who's a quarter Italian. I mean, come on now. My last name is Italian. It's a shame upon our people. Luckily, I'm, luckily I'm half Irish, and they know how to fight at least. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Explain to me. English, Irish, and Italian. You get anybody, anybody wonders why I'm weird, you know? But, but seriously, when's the last time you were worried about the Roman army? Never. 
Nobody's been worried about an Italian army, like I said, since the Goths in about the four, in the fourth century AD. They're not your enemy. Jesus isn't coming in to get rid of Rome. He's coming in to get rid of sin. That's the problem. The problem is not the enemy out there. The problem was always the enemy in here. Once that is conquered, now we have security. Now we have peace. Now we have victory. And now we have standing in the courts of God. This is what Palm Sunday is ushering in. This is what your New Testament is confirming. Hebrews 1. He is the radiance of his glory, to Jesus comparing him to God, the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you, and again I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. And the answer to that that Hebrews is assuming is, he didn't say that to any of them. But he said that to the king. He said that to the conqueror. He said that to the one who defeats the enemies of humanity. So, this is who he is. Verse 8. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. Why? Well, because God owns it. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, Psalm 24. And because this is what he has promised, that Abraham will be a blessing upon who? Abraham will be a blessing upon his children in the land of Israel in which they dwell. No, it'll be a blessing upon the all nations and the whole earth. And because that's what the fulfillment looks like, you get to Revelation. You see the martyrs coming out of that judgment. You see those that have died for the name, and they are from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And they are gathered around the throne and they are worshiping God because the fulfillment is being accomplished. That's what John is seeing in that book. That's the promise here to this anointed Messiah, to this one who is promised that the ends of the earth will be yours. Well, who's got that kind of power and authority to rule that kind of a kingdom? God does. That's why Jesus' authority and his identity matters. And then, what will that look like moving forward? Because remember, there's always two sides of the coin. Verse 9. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. You ever dropped a terracotta pot on a concrete sidewalk? I have. And then I got yelled at. <laughs> and then we won't talk about what happened after I got yelled at. <laughs> there is no more depressing thing because for a split second, you know what you think you can do? For just a split second, I can put it back together. And then you're like, as long as I can get the dust to fill in the cracks. Because something like, you know, a clay pot shatters. Yes, there's shards, but then there's like, you know, <laughs> the little particles and you're, you're done for. And some of you are like, oh yeah, well, I fixed one that cracked. Yeah, it cracked. It didn't shatter. It wasn't hit with a metal rod. You crack a terracotta pot with a, with a piece of rebar, you get a nice big mess. Why? Why is this part of it? Simple understanding, Christian. Something you should long for. God's justice will be done. Long quote, but it's important. Micah 7. Stick with me. Shepherd your people with your scepter, the flock of your possession, which dwells by itself in the woodland, in the midst of a fruitful field. Let them feed in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old. As in the days when you came out from the land of Egypt, I will show you miracles. Nations will see and be ashamed of all their might. They will put their hand over their mouth and their ears will be deaf. They will lick the dust like a serpent, like the reptiles of the earth. They will come trembling out of their fortresses to the Lord our God. They will come in dread and they will be afraid before you. Who is a God like you, who pardons iniquity, passes over the rebellious acts of the remnant of his possession? 
He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. You will give truth to Jacob and unchanging love to Abraham, which you swore to our forefathers from the days of old. Did you count all those references? All the Old Testament allusions and all the promises listed in that? Why will the nations be like the serpent? Because that one from the seed of the woman will crush his head and justice will be done. The nations will stream out, just like in Joel 2. Mighty is the day of the Lord and who can endure it? Like Revelation 6, the nations are what? They're trembling because the wrath of God and of the Lamb has been kindled. There's never a more ironic image. Imagine the nations mighty in their battle array are going, Oh no, it's a lamb! Hide me, hide me! It's a fun little image. See, Picture things the way they're presented. It's good for you. Remember, God's laughing. You can laugh too. <laughs> that would be bad hermeneutics right there, but it's, I'm going to stick with it. Why are they terrified? Because justice is being done. That's, the, that's that great ending of Revelation 6. The wrath of God and of the land has been kindled, and who can endure it? And the answer is always Revelation 7. All those who are gathered around the throne who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. That's part of what's going on here. They're being judged. Why? Because justice will be done. But in the midst of judgment, God will redeem his people. And in the midst of judgment, in the midst of that death spreading amongst humanity, God is still redeeming people out of it. That they will come in fear and he will tread their sins underfoot. And there will be a people who are redeemed. That is the hope. That is the fulfillment of all of the promises. And that is who Psalm 2 is pointing to. This is what has been contained in Jesus' ministry. This is what was supposed to be fulfilled in the minds of the people on Palm Sunday. This is what gets lost. Because we get so wound up in our world, we get so wound up in the things that we want, and we redefine God. And instead of living as if we are made in his image, we redefine him as if he is made in ours. And that's not new, and that's not unique to history. That is us each and every day. And it's why I'm forever telling you to have that conversation with the person you see in the mirror, to evaluate who are you and why are you? Why do you live this way? Why do you make this decision? Why do you work in that place? Why do you treat your children like that? Why do you talk to that person this way and this person that way? What is the function? Because if you're not evaluating these things, what you are doing is you are taking that anchor that we've talked about the last few weeks and just reeling it in a little. It'll be fine. It's not anchored on that nice bedrock anymore. It's still in that good, you know, sandy part. It'll be okay, right? Right? (laughs) This is the Christian work, day in and day out. Thinking and evaluating and understanding that all of life is to be lived unto the glory of God. That all of it is to be surrendered. And that's the final warning that's here in in the last little section. So verse 10. Now, therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. We will put this in our most exalted 20th century ebonics. Check yourself before you wreck yourself. That's what you should be worried about. And yes, I am white enough to get away with that. (laughs) Because I and Weird Al am white and nerdy. But that's the warning here. 
This is Romans 1 describing your world. I told you, you're described by a world by the Bible, right? It's it's Judges 21 and Romans 1. What's Romans 1 tell you? The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so so that they are without excuse. See, this is where Psalm 2 is so brilliant. You know. They know. And they know that you know that they know. Are you with me so far? I can do that again if it's not confusing enough. (laughs) It's one of the reasons why I always marvel and why I'm endlessly frustrated and fascinated by humanity. Because like that psychologist I was reading this past week, you're this close, dude. You can look at humanity and go, we are broken. We're supposed to think. Like, we have these great big brains. Think about what the human brain is capable of doing. And think about what we can build and what we can design and then realize that 99.9 of our decisions are not based on that great brain power, but how we feel. <laughs> just, just understand that. That's a brokenness at our core. And a psychologist can look at that understand that, know that the cure is to actually change the core and still deny the reality of God, who he is, and what that means in the world. They've drawn up battle lines. We will cast off the fetters. We'll win this time. Ah! It's like running into a brick wall. Well, it didn't fall down, so what will we do tomorrow? Same thing we do every day, Pinky. Try and run through the brick wall again. And they run through the brick wall tomorrow, and it doesn't fall down. So what are they going to do the next day? And the next day, and the next day, and the next day, and the next day. That's why Jesus can say things like he says in John 3. God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And technically, Jesus doesn't say that. If your Bible puts that in red letters, I'm going to argue with your Bible. That's John's little addendum starting in verse 16, just so you know. (laughs) It's an official position of my mind, so we're sticking with that. But why is that so important for John? Why does that matter? Because I don't have to tell you you're evil. You know who already knows you're evil? You do. I don't have to tell you the judgment abides upon you. You know who knows the judgment abides upon you? You do. You need to hear that there is a salvation. You need to hear a warning. Take warning, take heed, show discernment, recognize the reality of the world. (sighs) Otherwise, verse 11, worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. That's who you're supposed to be. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. What's the warning that John was, um, second John, be careful, beloved, that we don't lose what we have accomplished. Paul talking about the reverence of how we follow after Christ, making sure that we're actually evaluating things rightly. This is the goal. This is the reality of life. This is also part of Palm Sunday, by the way. Luke 19. As soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven. Glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, Rebuke your disciples. You know, there's always that one person. It's always that one. Most of the time, it's me. <laughs> Are we sure this is the right way we're supposed to be doing this? <laughs> I take a little bit of pride in that. It's okay. 
Jesus cried, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. The king has entered into his dominion. You think that the creation is just going to sit there and go, I've seen better. You know, it's not like the triumphal entry we had last week. (laughs) I mean, just process what the problems are and what's going on. You think Jesus returns in triumph, the heavens are split, the trumpet sounds, the earth is shaking, the sky's going black, and we're just going to be like, oh, neat. (laughs) Look at that. Who'd have thunk it? Anyway, who's winning? (laughs) Dinner ready yet? It's an understanding of who we are. Worship the Lord with reverence. Rejoice with trembling, recognizing both sides of the coin that we stand in a broken world that so desperately needs Jesus and that brokenness will be judged. But Christian, you can rejoice. And this is the final warning of the psalm. Verse 12, do homage to the Son that he not become angry and you perish in the way for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. You can see it. You see the two sides, right? The wrath will be kindled. Your sin will be judged. But look, if you have found refuge in him, you will be blessed. That judgment will pass over, to take an example from Israel's history. The judgment will be trampled underfoot and you will be rescued. This is where we live Christian. This is the reality of who we are. We want to follow after Paul. How does Paul describe this? Philippians 3. Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And more than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, and being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. That's where Paul was. Christian, that's where you are. You live in the midst of these battle lines. The world has drawn its lines. They're shaking their fists. They're going to war against God. God is laughing at them and warning them. Look, there's already a king. He's already enthroned. This is done. This is accomplished. The, oh, what is that? Oh, I have, I, don't you hate when you get a line stuck in your head and you don't remember where it came from? The, things have been set in motion which cannot be undone. That's what's going on right here in Psalm 2. If you know where that is, tell me at the end of the service. <laughs> this is the reality, but Christian... You live in a now, not yet. You sit looking at these two battle lines and you tremble. You tremble in reverence for God and you tremble because of fear of what the world might actually do. You're in a good place. Recognize the accomplishment of God. Recognize that as we follow after him, we share in the joys of his power. We share in the joys of his suffering because we have not crossed the battle line to the wrong side. This is why you look at the world and go, what is wrong with this place? Because you see it rightly. New heart, transformed mind, clear eyes, clear understanding, and you know. Rejoice there. Rejoice in who Christ is and where he has brought you and know that he has not forsaken you and he has not left you to your own devices, but he will carry you forward to a good day. Recognize Psalm 2 does not talk about this like it's a maybe thing. This is done. In David's mind, this is accomplished. In Acts 4, when they're talking about this, this is a done deal. And realize Jesus left. He went back up to heaven and they're going, oh, no, no, no. 
This is accomplished. There's a king on the throne and you got a problem. (laughs) That's one of the reasons why you can see the apostolic witness in the book of Acts. Keep warning against God. Look what will happen to you. I don't have to fight you. God will. God will have victory. God will conquer because at the end of the day, it is his accomplishment, his kingdom, because at the end of, at the beginning of all of this, it was whose world? Remember, there's not evil and good jockeying. This started as God's world and we made a mess of this place. It's not like that mess went, oh, you know what I need? No, it's still his world. And now he's cleaning up our mess and he's putting our broken pieces back together and he is going to redeem and rescue all of his people and all of his creation so that his good work will stand and endure as he has promised for eternity. Christian, remember that. And rest there because it is a work that God has accomplished for his glory and still yet for your good. Let's pray.